go ahead and have a seat. Good morning. I am so excited about Advent. I loved the phrase that was in our Advent reading today, an invasion of hope. Uh, 2,000 years later, we still need an invasion of hope in our world. Um, and that's what Advent is about. And what we're, our, our theme is going to be this year in Advent is this idea of an old-fashioned family Christmas. And I may bring to mind like the Christmas of the 1950s and all that sort of stuff. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is the Christmas of the zero, 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 zeros, right? Like the original Christmas family. That's what we're going to press into because this whole idea of an invasion of hope when God wanted to redeem the world and to invade the world with the hope of Christ, he did it by stepping into the drama of a small Middle Eastern family. Isn't that fascinating? He didn't have to do it that way. There's other ways he could have done it, but he chose to become a part of a family. So what we're going to look at this year is the biological family of Jesus over these next few weeks, because I think the fact that he chose that, maybe there's something that we could learn from it. <clears throat> Here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, there may have been a time in this last week, or maybe there will be a time in the coming weeks when you are spending time with your family uh, and the thought hits you, I did not choose any of these people. Um, <laughs> I just got stuck with these people. I'm doing the best I can with what I got stuck with. That's it. like, you don't get to choose your family, right? But they didn't get to choose you. So that knife cuts both ways, right? Um, but that is the reality of family is none of us get to choose our family except for one person, Jesus Christ. Jesus chose not only the time that he would come to earth, but he chose the place and he even chose the people that he would come to earth uh, in their family. I mean, think about this, kids. Jesus got to pick his mom and dad. That just blows my mind. I, he just got to pick his mom and dad. Um, I, if I got to pick my parents, I would pick the parents that I have. Uh, they're here today. So. <laughs> but I didn't get a pick. I also got stuck with them, and it worked out pretty well for me, so I feel good about that. Where was I? Um, <laughs> none of us got to pick our family, but Jesus got to choose his. And in that divine choice, he chose these people that we read about every Christmas. And you know what else? He also has chosen you and he's chosen me to be a part of his family. So that is worth understanding. That's worth diving into. That's what we're going to do today. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the, the family tree of Jesus, and we're going to read something that is not super exciting. It's the genealogy of Jesus. I know most of us, when we get to that part, we just skip right over it and get to the second chapter of Matthew. Um, but it's fascinating when you read it with the context that these are the people that Jesus chose. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew has gone to Ancestry.com and he put in Jesus' name and it spits out kind of this family tree for him. And he's going to tell us about that. 
Now, we do need to understand something about the writer of this. Matthew was one of the disciples of Jesus. His name was also Levi. Uh, Levi was Jewish in heritage, but he was a tax collector for the occupying government of Rome. So what that meant was he was just hated and despised, and he was thought of as a traitor to the people of God. So Jesus is walking one day, you can read in Matthew 9 about this, and he sees Matthew sitting there at his tax collector booth, and naturally, this despised traitor to the people of God, Jesus is like, hey, good to see you. Come follow me. And he does. He gets up and he follows him. And from that point forward, he is a disciple. And right off the bat, people start criticizing Jesus. And they say, look at who this guy is hanging around. And Jesus famously says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And that's kind of our introduction to this guy who's writing this. But we need to recognize this, that this gospel that he writes is going to be very connected to this experience that Matthew had of deep rejection from his countrymen and incredible acceptance from Jesus. So he's writing this genealogy to prove to his countrymen that, hey, Jesus actually is a descendant of Abraham and David, but uh, he's going to write it in a specific way that I think connects to what he experienced uh, in terms of rejection and acceptance from Jesus. Because remember, none of us got to pick our family, but Jesus got to pick his. And what Matthew knew probably better than anyone is that Jesus picked the sort of family that you and I might not pick. He picked the sort of family that others would reject. Listen to what Matthew writes, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Pause right there. These are the big names in the history of Israel, right? Uh, these are the patriarchs. You may remember uh, Jacob, God changed his name to Israel, which means he who struggles with God. And Israel became the name of the entire nation because of Jacob. It says Jacob had a son, Judah, right? You may remember Judah was one of 12 brothers that were the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and uh, you, you probably know the story about Judah's youngest brother, Joseph. He had a pretty awesome jacket. Um, and his brothers were all kind of jealous of that. And so long story short, Judah's like, let's throw him into a well and then sell him into slavery. And that's what he does. So Judah, not the most high quality individual in the entire Bible. And that is relevant because look at where Matthew goes next. Verse three, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, two notable things about this. First of all, he mentions that Judah had two sons even though the lineage would only pass through Perez, but these were twins. And I think he's mentioning them both because he's drawing attention to their story, which is further proved by the fact that he mentions their mother, Tamar. Now that is unheard of when you're establishing a genealogy. Um, legal inheritance rights were written so that it passed from the father to the oldest son. And that was very important. And that was the nature of the genealogies that they would write, especially for a king. So it Women were like, you know, kind of the silent partners when it came to this whole ancestry thing. Uh, ladies, that's stupid, right? I watched my wife give birth to three sons. She should definitely get top billing in the whole thing, right? 
my part was relatively easy by comparison, but uh, this you know, patriarchal society, that's what Matthew's writing out of, and so uh, everything is kind of structured in that way, father to oldest son, and Matthew purposefully breaks from this patriarchal structure because he wants to draw attention to the story of Tamar, something that all of his readers would have known in those days. You can read about it in Genesis 38. I'm going to just give you the highlights here. Happens after Judah, he sells his brother, his little brother into slavery, goes on with his life, no big issue, and he gets married, uh, and he marries a woman, he has three sons, and Judah goes out and he finds a wife for his oldest son named Ur. It was not, in fact, Perez. He finds a wife for Ur, and that woman is Tamar. So the Bible says that Ur was wicked, and so God killed him. Doesn't give us any more detail, just God killed him because he was wicked. And then we're introduced to Judah's second son, Onan. Now it's very important because of the genealogy, the, the lineage here, that the oldest son have an oldest son who has an oldest son. And so Judah comes to Onan, his second son, and he says, listen, I want you to sleep with Tamar so that you can produce a male son uh, for kind of our family name to go on for your brother. Now Onan does this, but he does something else that, that displeases God, and so God kills him too. There's a lot of killing going on in the Old Testament. Now we're introduced to Judah's third son, Shelah. Now, Shelah is too young at this point, so Tamar can't marry him, uh, but Judah says, listen, I, I'm tired of dealing with this. You go back to your father's house, live as a widow for a few years, and then when my youngest son gets old enough, maybe you can marry him. There's a lot of really concerning things about this story at that point, right? It gets worse, but let's just stop right here. Most of all, what's really concerning about this is it's written as if Tamar has like zero say in the matter. It's like, hey, produce an heir. Um, it's not like, well, and she fell in love with the second son, right? Like she just has zero say in it. And sadly, that probably was true. In these patriarchal cultures in the ancient world, women had very little power and often this idea of producing an heir and keeping the, the lineage intact was valued above the desires and the rights of women. Now, thank God that we have come a little ways since then, right? And we would all look at that and say, well, that's horrible. You know, this, uh, this may go without saying, but I, I will say it, women, Despite the fact that history is full of stuff like this, God never intended you to be second-class citizens in any society or family, least of all the family of God. And I know there are some famous pastors out there who are saying, no, he did, that's why it's like this, and you should just go home and accept it, but they're wrong. That's not what God intended, least of all in the family of God. And when we read this stuff in the Old Testament, we read the abuses that Tamar experienced, we can call them abuses. It's appropriate to call them abuses because that is what they are. Men, if you are the sort of godly man, I want to call this out in you, that uses the power you have in society to fight for the rights of women so they don't have to experience this sort of inequality and abuse, I, I just I want you to hear this. You are doing the Lord's work. That's part of what it means to be a godly man, is to fight for equal rights for women and to use the power that has fallen to us men to make sure that other men don't abuse their power to manipulate 
and control women like has happened since the beginning of time. As part of our role as men, that was something Jesus did in his culture with his power. And that's something that we need to do in our culture with our power. Uh, That was not something that was really on Judah's radar in this story, right? So Judah looks at Tamar as a, as a problem, and he sends her back to, his father, to her father's house, and he basically just doesn't want to take care of her. And he says, hey, one day you can marry my youngest son, but he really has no intention of following through on that. He's basically just getting rid of her. Now, fast forward a few years. Judah's wife has died. Tamar has realized now that Judah has no intention of fulfilling this promise. Uh, and here's where it gets really weird. Um, So Tamar hears that Judah is going to be visiting her father's town. She takes off her widow's clothes and she dresses up like a prostitute. And she goes to the city gate, which is where the prostitutes would gather. And when Judah sees her, he doesn't recognize her. And remember the sort of individual that Judah is. He looks at her and just thinks she's a prostitute. And he says, and I quote, come now, let me sleep with you. Just a great guy. He promises to give her a goat as a payment, but he doesn't have the goat on him. It's like, oh. I don't know how that works, but in the ancient world, he he does have what is called his seal, the seal for his household. So he gives her this seal, and he says, listen, I'll come back, and I'll give you a goat. Take this. It's like an IOU. Um, So they sleep together, and she becomes pregnant. But he doesn't realize it, and he goes off you know, none the wiser to who she really is. And just when you think the story couldn't get worse, buckle up. Three months later, it's discovered she's pregnant, and they send word to Judah that his daughter-in-law is pregnant because of prostitution. Now, Judah, still not knowing that it was her that he slept with, says, and again, I quote, bring her to me so we can burn her to death. If you look up the term double standard in the dictionary, it says a rule or principle which unfairly apply, which is unfairly applied in different ways to different people or groups. From the beginning of time, there has been a double standard on issues of sexuality. What do you call a woman who sells sex? She's a prostitute. She's a whore. There's a whole host of other words that are derogatory. What do you call a man who buys sex? He's called a John. Isn't that polite? You know, the world is full of disgusting double standards like that. And this is why Jesus comes and he says, listen, I'm going to start a kingdom that's nothing like this world because we have to overturn that stuff as his people. And he says, listen, what I'm going to set up is going to be founded on justice and equality it's going to overturn these double standards of the world. But, you know, Judah's not thinking about that kingdom, and he certainly isn't thinking about what he did three months ago. But he is super eager to punish her for what she did three months ago. Now, of course, I, you know, you have to say this. What Tamar did to her father-in-law is clearly wrong, Right? Uh, The prostitution is clearly wrong, but I think 
what, what we see in Tamar's story, we need to note because we see something that we would see in virtually every instance of prostitution. We see desperation in Tamar. Uh, I, I'm guessing that you have likely not met many prostitutes in your life. Um, I, I've had occasion working with the Exodus Road of meeting quite a few. I, I've helped them with investigations sometimes over these last couple of years, and you go into brothels, collect evidence of human trafficking and that sort of thing. And so I've had occasion to talk to quite a few prostitutes. I've talked uh, to female prostitutes, to male prostitutes, to transgender prostitutes. Um, I've talked to young girls who are underage and were tricked and coerced into prostitution. I've talked to girls who are maybe of age and maybe they had some choice in the matter. Um, maybe they wanted a better life. I've talked to some women, it just break your heart. They're just trying to provide food for kids at home. What's been true of every single prostitute I've met is none of them chose it because they wanted it. That they wound up doing this work because they were desperate. And there's this thread of desperation. Now, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. But it does, in my mind, put a small asterisk on the decision and on the action. Actions done out of desperation can still be wrong. Tamar's was. But we should note the way she's been passed around we should note the way she's been lied to and deceived. We should note the way she's been marginalized by men who should have taken care of her. We note that stuff because it matters to God. Matthew includes her name, this convicted prostitute, because he believes that her story matters to Jesus. And who would know? A guy like Matthew with this horrible reputation. And just like Jesus did with Matthew, Jesus would include Tamar and his family because she matters. Matthew is honoring her. He is drawing attention to her story because she has value to God. It's astounding. Now Judah, on the other hand, Judah doesn't value her at all. And without once considering that he has committed the exact same sin, if not one that's a little bit worse, Judah says, bring her to me so we can burn her to death. But do you remember the whole deal with the goat and the seal? Well, Tamar remembers it. And when she's brought to him for this punishment, she pulls out his seal and says, I am pregnant by the man who gave me this. And then in like the coolest mic dropping moment of all, she looks at Judah in the eyes and she says, can you tell me whose seal this is? <laughs> and to his credit, Judah realizes and he repents and he confesses, and he makes this great statement about Tamar. He says, surely she is more righteous than me. And he takes care of her for the rest of her life, and she gives birth to his twins, Perez and Zerah. And she is included in the family of God, in the family of Jesus. Now, none of us got to pick our family, right? Jesus got to pick his family and in his divine choice, this 
is the family that he chose, Tamar and Judah, and, and also you and also me. Now, it's important to someone like Matthew that we get this. He continues, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amenadab, Amenadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now he's doing it again. Rahab is an interesting mention. She is the great-great-grandmother of King David, and we know from extra-biblical sources, this is the same Rahab who you may remember helped the people of God defeat the city of Jericho. She was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite prostitute. And again, Matthew is making a point. He is including someone that everyone else would have passed over, this Gentile prostitute who demonstrates more faith in God's promise than many of God's people at that time. None of us get to pick our family, but Jesus got to pick his, and that's who he chose, Rahab. He also chose you and me. He continues, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Ruth was also a Gentile. He's calling that out. She married into the family of God, demonstrates this tremendous faith, this tremendous love for God's people. Uh, she was a Moabite, which is relevant because they were the enemies of Israel, and she immigrated to Bethlehem uh, shortly after her husband died, and she gets a job there, and she winds up actually marrying her boss, who is this man, Boaz, and she's this amazing example of God's people taking care of the foreigner, of the immigrant, like they were commanded by God to do. It's important to someone like Matthew that this sort of inclusion is pointed out. He continues, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And again, like he's just pointing out the ugly part of every story. When uh, David uses his power uh, to force another man's wife to sleep with him and then kills her husband, marries her. And not only does Matthew refuse to gloss over those details, like he's purposefully drawing our minds to these stories. Next, he jumps into a list of all the kings who came after David, uh, and instead of me mispronouncing all those names, we'll just skip down to verse 11. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So Matthew has laid out this genealogy into three groups of 14. The first 14 is like from Abraham to David, where the throne of David is established. The next 14 generations is where the throne is cast down and the people of God are taken into exile in Babylon. And then the last 14 generations is where God begins to restore all that Israel has lost. And it ends in verse 16 with the Messiah being revealed and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So legally, what he's proving here is that Joseph and consequently Jesus uh, carried the legal claim to the throne of David. But also notably, he, he includes Mary because he's about to mention the virgin birth, which was very important to the people of God, especially in the early church, because it was important to point out to everyone that the incarnation of Jesus did not happen because of the will of a husband or because of the will of a wife, that it happened solely because of the will of God. It was God himself who chose to enter into the mess, into the muck of this earth in this moment, in this family, with this ancestry, 
It was God himself who chose to become associated with all of these people. God chose Mary. God chose Joseph. God chose the murderer and the rapist, David. God chose the victimized Bathsheba. God chose the Moabite, Ruth. He chose the prostitute, Rahab. He chose Tamar in her desperation. And he chose Judah in his sin. And eventually, he chose you and he chose me. Matthew ends with this, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Jesus got to choose his family. This is not at all the sort of family that I would expect the holy and perfectly righteous God to choose. That's what he does. That's what this Messiah does. He claims people that everyone else would reject. And it's important to Matthew to point that out. Let me just make a couple observations about this that may be meaningful to us. It really is just one observation. But I want to say it a few different ways so we really get it. Um, It's this. In the same way that he claimed all of these people, do you know that he claims you and he claims me? There's this amazing verse. We don't ever think about it as a Christmas verse, but it really is a Christmas verse. Over in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Now that phrase, adoption to sonship, it was a Roman legal term that meant given the full rights as an heir. And I know it's like very gender biased, like it's adoption to sonship, but that's just the way the term was written. This is why a few verses earlier, Paul goes to great lengths to say there in Christ there is neither male nor female, that we are all adopted and given the rights of firstborn sons. And he continues, verse 6, Because you are his sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. And what he's saying is the same way that Jesus came into the family of Joseph and Mary, and he chose them to be his people, in that same way, he's chosen us to be his people too. It's like this family tree stretches in both directions from Jesus, like stretches back to all of these people that Matthew's talking about in Matthew 1, but it stretches all the way forward to that branch that you and I occupy. And what's so amazing about that, and I think what Matthew would want us to know is this, that whatever else you are, if you have Christ, you are God's family. Whatever else you are, That's why he came to earth. Paul says when the set time had come, meaning like Jesus is up in heaven and he's looking through the history and he's like, this is the moment. And he got up from his seat and he stepped into the mess of this family to claim us. And we are claimed as well. We are the family that he chose. And I think what we've got to realize about that is that our association with him redeems everything about us, including our reputation. This is what Matthew discovered. This is why he's including these people with horrible reputations, because Matthew had a horrible reputation. And then Jesus said, hey, come follow me. And from that point forward, he was a disciple of Jesus, a child of God. That became his identity. 
I think Matthew learned from that and he realized something about himself that he wants to call out in us. And it is this, that when you are a part of the family of God, you are always more than the worst things you've ever done. Always. And when you are a part of the family of God, you are always more than the worst things done to you. Always. And we see our sin. It's easy to see. We see the ways others have sinned against us. That's real easy to see too. I think what Matthew is hoping, what Paul is certainly hoping, is that what we would see more than anything else is that he's claimed us, that we're more than those horrible things we've done, more than what's been done to us. We are his, and what gives us worth is the same thing that gave worth to everyone in that list, that he came for us, that he adopted us, that he is putting his family back together, and he has saved us a seat. That's the invasion of hope. That's Advent. Let me close with an illustration and then we'll pray and worship. I mentioned last week I was in Latin America a couple weeks ago with the Exodus Road. Uh, Our partner who works in the human trafficking space, one of the things we got to do is we got to visit a rehabilitation home um, for girls and boys who have been rescued out of human trafficking. Um, And, you know, it it felt on some level like a little bit of holy ground just walking into this home. Um, When someone is rescued, they have a great relationship with the government. Uh, When they're rescued after being forced and coerced into prostitution, they are uh, placed in this home where they can receive care and counseling and medical help and all the things that they may need. We're in the common area of this home And I saw over on the wall a picture, and I asked them about it, and they said, one of the survivors painted this picture, and it just, it took my breath away when you realize what it is. I took a picture of it. I just, I want to share it with you today. To me, um, it it speaks to the ill-fitting sexuality that was, this girl was forced to put on, forced by people who should have taken care of her, who should have provided her, but instead took advantage. Now, first and foremost, it is heartbreaking. It's devastating. Nobody should have to. There's also a thread, I think, of hope in this picture. Because as painful as it may be to imagine, there is something about this that she is in a place where she is safe enough to grieve, to process, to express what has happened, and eventually to heal. And I wonder, I wonder if maybe if, if we could let this young lady who has suffered so much lead us a little bit this morning. She might just know something that we need to understand. I know none of us have experienced what she has experienced, but isn't this true? 
all of us on this earth have put on things that do not fit. You know, we have all felt the grief of walking in shoes we were never meant to wear. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's our own sinful choices. Sometimes it's things that other people's sin has been done to us. Sometimes it is just living in the double standard of the kingdoms of this world and it just doesn't fit and we don't fit in it. You know, I think what this young lady knows is that our world is full of ill-fitting shoes, isn't it? You know, I think if we're wise, we don't just numb the pain of that, but we name it like this young lady has. I think if we're wise, we look for safe places like this young lady, by the grace of God, has found to talk about it. And Jesus shows up and says, you are my son. You are my daughter. And listen, I know all about that ugly stuff that you chose. I know all about the ugly, ugly stuff that has been done to you. And I still chose you to be my family. I picked you to bear my name. And I think part of what Jesus is saying to us, what he maybe said to this young lady is this, listen, in my family, we take those shoes off. In my family, we take those ill-fitting identities that we've grabbed onto or that have been forced upon us, we take them off. In my family, we run barefoot in the grass. And maybe as we embrace that identity of being part of Jesus' family, we can finally take off some of the ill-fitting things because we are God's children. You know, if you hear nothing else this Advent, I just, I, I just want you to hear that. It's not just the story of a family long ago. It is the story of your family because Jesus chose you to be his family. And Christmas is about taking off all of those other ill-fitting identities and just resting in that identity as a chosen child of God. You don't have to parade around in those ill-fitting shoes anymore. Let me ask, what ill-fitting identity is God asking you to take off this Christmas? What ill-fitting identity is God asking you to set aside? You are more than whatever you've done. You're more than what's been done to you. You are more than those ill-fitting identities you may carry around. You're his. Can we pray together about that? We are the family of God. Let's go to him, Mrs. Children. Jesus We so desperately want to believe you that you've claimed us. Lord, help us to take off those things that do not fit, those identities that we've foolishly chosen or that have been thrust upon us. Help us to rest 
in what we truly are, which is your children above all. We trust you, Lord. Amen.